Thank you to those with the opening that it's a big boost to helping us in our hearts and minds to receive the Word of God together this morning. Jesus, the Master Teacher. That's no surprise in the context of our topic this morning. But Jesus was not only known as the truth who expounded that to us, he was one of the world's great questioners of the human heart. When I was preparing this message, uh, this particular question of his jumped out at me, one of the 300 that I kind of read through as I was preparing this. 300 questions he asked, and this is the one that hit me, and you can see it was because of the name that was there. But before you think you're off the hook, this morning I would like you just to read that and put your own name in that question as we move through our verses this morning. It's my earnest prayer that as we look at this comprehensive topic that we will open our minds and hearts to understand that we're somewhat like Philip. We've been with Jesus for a long time. How well do we really know him? In our seeking to understand God greater together in in a bigger and more significant way, the topic of God's sovereignty each time you study it raises some questions. Sometimes these questions begin with when you hear what is said, you say, but, not therefore. Sometimes we'll say, yeah, but what about this? And sometimes you'll say, what about the other guy? So I just want you to just pause for a moment and get our own preconditions to learning this morning in place. The first of these is that we must, if we're going to learn together, humble ourselves before the sovereign God of the universe. And the test of that is uh, along the lines of one questioner from the book of Romans who, when he was confronted with these teachings, was answering back to God. If we're truly humble before him this morning, as we go through it, we will not answer back. But we will just humble ourselves before him and learn what he has to say. And yes, we have questions. Just make a note of those, put them at the end, and we're going to take them up at the end and answer them all, of course. No. The second precondition that I would urge upon us all is that we don't focus like Peter did when Jesus told him in advance what kind of death he was going to die. All of us would probably respond something like he did. But Jesus, what about the other guy? What about John, the apostle? I mean, he's your loved one. Why are you treating him better than me and I'm going to be crucified like you did, like you were? So let's just set those two preconditions in our mind as we go through this topic. We're looking at the, uh, a very challenging series together. And the theme is around the sovereignty of God the the general topic is God's attributes the specific one this morning is God's sovereignty and the second part of it was okay we can understand what what we understand about God but how does that how was that reflected how was it represented uh, by Jesus when he was here we looked at this uh, slide before uh, at the beginning and uh we, we know that we're before the God who claims to be the one and only. There is no other God. 
Uh, we have the Trinity aspect of God expressed with all of these same attributes. It's not that one person of the Trinity had different attributes. They all share the same attributes. Uh, those attributes are divided into the constitutional ones, like unity, infin- infinity, eternality, immutability. God is spirit. He's omnipresent. And this morning we're looking at the last two uh, in, in, in somewhat of a joined way. God is sovereign and omnipotent. In personality, he, was, he knows everything. He, he has the, the attributes of holiness, love, justice, goodness, truth, faithful. Brother David Hook added a few of those to his talk a couple of weeks ago. And our focus is on how did Jesus come as this divine Son of God into time and space and reflect and represent those attributes. What's before us this morning as individual people is a response that like, is the one on the left, one who bows before the Lord Jesus Christ and seeks to learn from him uh, what he would have us know about him this morning and, and in particular know about how he wants to have a relationship uh, with us. And on the other side is the option that so many follow is they say, but, but, they say, not me, Lord. They say, I'd rather listen to other things and so on. So that's where we are as a series. So the question that should start us off this morning is, what are we talking about? So I started like a theological professor 101 would try and do it, and I'm not one of those, but I start with the definition of the word. I went to the scriptures and immediately said, well, that's not how God was teaching us about himself. So I'm going to take you through a bit of a, a story before we get to how God represented himself as a way of understanding what sovereignty is about. Like Mark, our brother last week, last week, went back to the beginning. And in that beginning, I looked at the word God. And he was the one who created the earth. We all know this so well. At the bottom of the slide is the word for God used was, my pronunciation is not good at all, I'll just anglicize it and say Elohim. This noun is plural in form, but attached to it is a singular form verb. So he represents himself as, as a plural God. Now, it's easy for us Christians to transliterate back to the, the, that as the Trinity of God, and that's entirely legitimate. In Hebrew language and culture, it was a term that described the honored highest position given uh, to the God that is being referred to. So just accept that for a moment and uh, notice that it's reflected with uh, that name is used by himself as he described uh, the origins, the beginning, and we'll come back to that a little later. So you go to the next chapter and we find that God refers to himself with another name. And that name is uh, read, there are the, these are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord... God, two names, made the earth and heavens, and it was in the context of forming the man. So in the, with the word God, the number 0430 was the one we saw in Genesis 1, the one and only God, the highest 
in the dominion, the one who created, is also wants to be known as the Lord, which is Jehovah. And that is the personal name of God. That's the name of God that the Israelites would call him without pronouncing the name, recognizing the sacred position that he held in the universe and the recognition of the reality that God wants to have a personal relationship with his people, with you, with me. And so he attaches those two names to himself at the beginning. Jehovah means I am that I am. I am the one who is. I am the one who is a personal God. So that's the kind of the way that he represents himself. There's, we have no time for all of this, but uh, I listed a bunch of, uh, of the names that were used by God in the Old Testament. And we see the Yahweh, we see the uh, Elohim as a very frequent mention in the, in the Bible. These are oftentimes used together. Uh, and there's another one called Adonai, Lord and Ruler. And those two are often uh, used together by God about himself uh, in terms of uh, the, the majestic position that he occupies uh, as the God of the universe. In the Bibles that you have in your hands, you'll see when these are used together, the, the translators help us with the original language, and they, when the word Jehovah is used, it will, in most of the translations that I checked anyway, it capitalizes the word God or Lord to recognize uh, what word is being used about him. And uh, uh, he's sometimes described as Lord God, and those are in combination with the word Adonai, Adonai, Jehovah, Sovereign. Lord, or in the AV, Lord God, and you'll see that uh, quite frequently in the readings. How did God represent himself? Uh, uh, he represented himself uh, through his names when it comes to the Lord Jesus. So what was taught about God in the Old Testament was prophesied about the coming of Jesus and uh, uh, prophesied about the divine Son of God, the servant of God who was to come, and some names were given to him. Daniel uh, chapter 9 and verse 25. Know and understand this, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens. So we want to just link the Old Testament to the New Testament by these Old Testament verses, first of all, that predict his coming. Not only do they predict who, uh, who was coming, but when he was going to come. And that again is tremendous evidence for the God that we understand is one who had control of time. He made predictions about what he was going to do and he fulfilled them completely. And in the fulfilling them we learn a great deal about the representation of who the divine son of God was who was to come. He was going to come as the anointed one. The New Testament word, word for that is Christ, the Messiah. And he's also the ruler, the same word used in the Old Testament, that he is the, he is the anointed one, the ruler. And then when, in Matthew chapter 1, we see his names given again in the New Testament. Now the birth of Jesus Christ, Christos. Matthew 1, 20 and 21, an angel of the Lord appeared to him and you are to give him the name Jesus, which is the Greek form of Joshua, the, which means the Lord Jehovah saves. And the third name given is they will call him Emmanuel, 
which means God with us. So if you come at this with the perspective that Jesus was a good man or he was a a great teacher, uh, we're glad he came, we think he left us lots of good teaching about love and and, uh, lots of good uh, uh, attitudes to have and hold in our lives, all of that is true. But if we neglect in our understanding of him that God sent his divine son into the world to demonstrate to us who he was, then we've missed uh, we've missed a great deal about him. Uh, This has been covered by many of the speakers when we've been talking about God and his attributes, his control of nature, and for the sake of time I'll just let that slide uh, stand. But uh, we understand that God is sovereign through his, or who God is through the control of nature, light and darkness. We see how he did that in the Old Testament. We see how he did that in the New Testament through his son. And uh, I always include one for Rod. God brings a great fish to Jonah large enough to eat him. He doesn't want that one. Uh, Jesus brings a great catch of fish in the New Testament. But those were all things to demonstrate to us a timing that he chose to, to show who he was as the divine Son of God, the eternal God uh, in the universe. He not only demonstrated who he was through the through the uh, his control of nature, but also through his claims of origin. And I think that argument is pretty straightforward. He created. He wasn't just there in the beginning. He created the beginning. So that's an obvious argument to understand that God, the originator of all that exists, is the one who uh, is. Uh, we are to understand who that is. In the New Testament, that, re- that uh, reference to Jesus was used in the name the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The one who came to express God, the Word, the, to express the thought and mind of God, His purposes. That's why He came, and the evidence that He was the divine Son of God is that He was the Creator of the universe. How He did it, that's a, another discussion. But we recognize the argument that's behind that claim of God's that he wanted to represent himself not only at the time of creation in, in giving making the creation if I can use those words but also the sustainer of it and the upholder of it and the, the important thing is that God didn't retire on the seventh day he didn't sit back in his grandfatherly chair, much as us would like to in our retirement time. He sat, he's there active throughout history according to his will and purpose in the creation and the people in particular uh, that he made. The fourth thing I noticed as I was studying this was that he is he represented himself through the divine decrees. And I almost got lost in my talk studying this because of the number of decrees there are in the Bible that God made and how they apply to us. But if you look at covenants or decrees or agreements, I'm using those words synonymously, of God... There are different types of agreements that we use, so they're not necessarily what we think about. Most of us, when we think of covenants or agreements, we think of legal contracts today that are between two equal equal partners, or maybe not so equal at times, but that's what we call a parity covenant, an, an agreement between peers. 
the not the different uh, as, different ways of looking at agreements are not they're not in the form of a parity agreement, but they are conditional agreements, or they're unconditional. And when we look at this these concepts in the scriptures. They're obviously not parity agreements, and that is what the, one of the arguments I'm trying to present this morning, that when God made a decree, a covenant with man, he was the originator of them. We, Adam and Eve didn't... Have, but Lord, what, what about the apple? All of these kind of questions. He laid it down. He, was the, he had the authority to lay down these covenants and agreements with man. And as we trace them through the scriptures, you can do this on your own. You can ask these questions. Well, who set the conditions for the agreement? Who set the outcomes, whether the conditions were met or not? Uh, Who was to perform what in the agreement? And those are extremely important things. And as we work through them in the Bible from the various ones that are in the Old Testament and the new covenant, the new agreement between God and man that he set down, he is the God of the universe. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And when he sets down those agreements before us, we must pay careful attention to them. And in our case, learn from the Old Testament ones, but recognize that the one that we're under today is the new covenant that the God, that the God, divine Son of God set down and brought to us in his coming uh, to the earth. So then we should come to the definition. I've been skirting it all the way through. But I've offered one that says, Sovereignty is defined as the highest position in a dominion or domain. That's not just about God, we'll come to that in a moment. But we would use that term in the king, of the king or the royal prince in the governments of the land today uh, as the one who is sovereign. He is the highest position, he or she, the highest position in a dominion or in a domain of another type. And that's the way we use the word today. You'll often hear the term sovereign nation. That nation is set apart. Uh, there's some discussion about, well, so, uh, Arabia, uh, um, Syria is a sovereign nation and someone went on sovereign nation ground and what about that and those kind of but that's the way the term sovereign is used today in Daniel chapter 7 the word was used and perhaps expressed very well for us in the example of Nebuchadnezzar again this wasn't a this wasn't a classroom setting this was taking the the king Nebuchadnezzar who set himself up as God and God taught him a lesson for, for, their, for his learning, for the learning of his people, uh, and the, uh, the learning of the Jewish people who was under his command at the time. Daniel 7, and we, we read some of this, and there was given him dominion, sovereignty, glory, and a kingdom, and so on. His, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. The corollary to that is that he is in charge of all of the sovereign nations of the world, or he is not God. And he is active in their role. And he superintends what goes on. If he is God, he is, has the authority and he has the position to uh, do those things. And uh, that's when the rubber hits the road for a lot of us in understanding that. Now, in the definition, a few things are, are implied that we need to pay attention to. 
the highest position in a, in a dominion or domain, and in God's case, that implies there is no higher position. He is not one God over another God. The gods of man are nothing compared to the God of heaven. He is the highest authority and position in the world by far. And we can't find words to express that. Men of this, particularly of political power, should just take pause and bow before the God of heaven. There is no higher position than his. And that implies ultimate authority. That he has the authority to enact, he has the authority to prescribe, he has the authority to delegate, and so on in that position. And that implies the power to sustain. Now some people, when they look at the definition of sovereignty, put them together. Position and power. That's not, that is not necessarily implied. We can have a Queen of England who has the position but not the power. The power resides in another aspect of the governance of that country, and we could talk about many different things in that regard, but I think you get the point. It does not imply some things that we need to be careful of as well. In human terms, moral character is quite varied in quality across the sovereign uh, domains of men. In God's dominion, His moral character needs additional descriptors to understand who he is. We we understand his constitutional attributes, but when we come to his sovereignty, we need to also recognize that he is a person, as is he identified by his name, but in that personhood, he has attributes that we also need to understand. So it could be a scary person of God who was a God who just had... uh, his power and his authority without those attributes. Those attributes are immutable. They don't change. Those attributes are uh, uh, basic characters and attributes of each of the members of the Trinity, each of the persons of the Trinity that uh, work together on these same attributes. It's also true that these attributes, his personal attributes of holiness, they, are, they, are, they never change, they're always there. Sin can never be tolerated. He is absolutely holy. They don't change by circumstance of men. They don't change by time. They, are, they don't, he does not change. So if you look at, some people look at the God of the Old Testament as a different God than the God of the New Testament. You're on shaky ground with that. There are some things we need to learn about, and we don't have time to pursue why those things happened this morning. But in our basic fundamental building blocks of understanding, we have to recognize that He is, Jesus is, the Word of God who came to demonstrate God to us. So that's a definition, and now let's look at how it's declared in Scripture, and we're going to, I hate to say it, but pick up speed a little bit, but to just have a look at the Scriptures that describe this sovereignty. Now, I'd like to take the time for each one to describe how the other attributes come into play. That's where the knitting session goes on in our minds as to how God's justice and how His mercy and how His love and how His forgiveness work together. 
But let's just pause and learn the topic that's before us a bit this morning. Psalm 22 and 28. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Matthew 6 and verse 9. And so I'm trying to give an Old Testament reference and a New Testament reference together so that you can see how the divine Son represents God that we understood from the Old Testament. Matthew 6 and verse 9. How did Jesus pray? Our Father in heaven, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Sovereignty declared. Isaiah chapter 46 and verse 9. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. My purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. So here's an example of the knitting together of his attributes. These are not just stagnant attributes of love and of of, uh, omniscience and omnipotence, but it's also a knitting together of his purpose in his actions, his wisdom in his actions, his love in his actions. And uh, those are so important things to knit together and we're not focused on those parts as I said earlier. When we came, come to the Lord, what, look what he prayed in John 17 and 2. For you grant, he's praying to his father just before the cross, for you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. And again, we have this uh, clear view of Jesus bringing the love of God to us and the purposes of God to us. And we are to respond to those and proclaim in our hearts and minds, He has authority over me. I am to listen to Him and learn from Him and obey Him and follow Him as our response if we really truly understand uh, these claims that he made. In the Old Testament we've talked about Nebuchadnezzar and at the end of his torment, I think you, you know the story and if not read up on it in Daniel, at the end of it he said, Then I praised the Most High, I honored and glorified him who lives forever, his dominion is an eternal one. His kingdom, his sovereign domain endures from generation uh, to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. Now that's not saying what at first blush it says. He's saying, compared to me, uh, they are nothing uh, in their own right or in their own domain. They are are my people if they they follow me and he will make them uh, who he wants them to be. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven, because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And let's all avoid the necessity of his injecting that into our lives. Ezekiel 21:25, O profane and wicked prince of Israel, whose day has come, whose time of punishment has reached its climax. We don't have time for this this morning, but if you look at God's action with the nations of the world in the Old Testament, we learn that he is the one who superintends all of the nations and he turns them over according to his own purposes. And if you look at his activities today, no one can say for sure this or that is happening in the world. But we do see some of the the things that are yet promised are going to come to pass. Because our God who promised them 
is the eternally omnipotent God with his own will and purpose as to how he's going to fold up the universe at the end of the day and suck it back into a black hole and recreate something. I'm just talking off the top of my head a little bit. How he's going to recreate the new heavens and the new earth. And one, that's, that comes from the verse 27. A ruin, a ruin. I will overturn, I will overturn it. It will not be restored until he comes to whom it rightfully belongs. And Jesus, when he came, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, here is the king of the universe crying out for Jerusalem to come to him. And he's declaring his authority and position over the nation of Israel and the nation of other, and other nations who would impede what he has committed to have happen. And I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. John 10 and 24, the Jews gathered around him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, the promised one, tell us blamely. And here are some verses you need to study carefully. He says in verse 26, But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. And we all know about these debates about eternal security or eternally insecure. But follow these verses carefully. And some people say, well, you can jump out of his hand. We are not the judge of how God has accepted people. That's his domain. He's the sovereign God. If he has accepted you... I don't know why that came, but I'm just thankful. <clears throat> if we're in his family, we're given to Jesus by the Father, no one can snatch them out of his hand. Uh, we've already covered this point. I'll just uh, skip that slide. It's a little bit different than the previous one, but we'll leave it there. Look at the sovereignty demonstrated in Jesus over principalities and powers, over Satan and his evil spirits, over the nations of Israel. He's proclaiming woes on Israel at the time. He also makes prophecies that he's going to return to deal with Israel at a later date. He's proclaiming his judgment over all the nations in Matthew 24 and Luke 17. talks about paying taxes to Caesar, just tax time is just over. So those are some other ways that he demonstrated his, uh, uh, his sovereignty. Now I put this chart up just to, uh, to look at the way that his sovereignty was demonstrated in the Lord in the exercise of his attributes. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to highlight the verses that I've pulled together to, to show you how the, that, that works in, in Scripture. His sovereignty is at the top. His omnipotence is tightly uh, coupled uh, to... Uh, uh, to his sovereignty on the left, I've tried to put the, uh, uh, put the uh, constitutional attributes of God on the right, his personal attributes. And then at the bottom of the chart, I've put in uh, his will, his wisdom as he acts. And has all of those flow together in his, his, uh, the way his purposes are worked out in the universe. The, uh, I also added on, on my chart, it's not showing up for some reason, but uh, I added uh, the ones that Dave Hook said we missed in our series. Can't find it. Uh, forgiveness and humility, which he added in his talk, which I really like. Uh, in, 
Omnipotence, John 10 and 18. No one takes it from me that he's speaking about his life. But I lay my life down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. So many of the songs and hymns about the death of Jesus talk about how, how it was out of his control and people put him to death and all of the ways that we try to understand and talk about it. But there's another layer that we need to look at. We need to look at the fact that Jesus was the divine son of God giving up his life in payment of our uh, dying in, the, in place of our death and paying the penalty of death and so on as, as uh, Dave Hook covered so well last week. I've highlighted in red, love. John 15 and 13. Greater love has no one than this that he laid down his life uh, for his friends. We talked about his will and his purpose. John chapter 1 and verse 13. The children who become his children do not come to him because they were born of natural descent. In other words, you don't inherit a relationship with God because you're in the Donaldson or Jenkinson. I'll probably pick some bad names there. But <laughs> but uh, Baker, there I'll pick on. We're not, we, we don't come into our relationship with him because we inherit it. We come here and we don't inherit it because of a husband telling us or a wife telling us we ought to do this. We are born of God when we personally yield our will to him, recognize that we need to repent of sin and recognize that Jesus, the divine son of God, is the only one who can remedy sin through his death and and through the life that he gives uh, in response to, uh, in response, sorry, the, the death that he died brought the possibility of the Son of God being able to offer to all eternal life. And will and wisdom, I think it was Wally who talked about the wisdom of God, and I just requote uh, his verse here, to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom of God, uh, from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption imputed to us. Highlighting the judge. These are the harder ones to understand for us at times, but we need to accept them as part of who God is. John 5 and 22. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. John 3.17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So God has constrained by his own uh, purpose and will judgment. He judged Jesus Christ on the cross. He took it upon himself, in other words, that work of salvation. He res- the judgment that was there because of, uh, because of our sin, he took upon himself and paid the penalty for it so we could be offered eternal life uh, if we accept him as our Savior. This is uh, one that's in Scripture, and I want to highlight it, and we're out of time, but... Uh, John 6 and 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up the last day. This is the great mystery of a God who is all-powerful, who offers choice to men and women. And in parallel to that, he talks about his people as the elect from the past eternity. That's the word he uses. So he has provided the way for a people of God. We're not talking racially here. We're talking about the family of God, whether Israel or, or Israelites or Jewish, whether this or that. He has extended his gospel to all people who will respond to him. 
And those who walk through that door, my dad described it this way, once you go through that gate of accepting Christ as Savior, you look at the back and say, this is who God is. This is what all he has planned for us. This is what he has for those who are his. And it's a mystery that is far beyond my intellectual capacity and all of ours, I'm sure, to fully understand how God is God. And you know what? Why is that so surprising? What? We're on this little slice of, of time of, in the human race, and we're a small part of that, and, and God cares about us. How do we, how do we grasp that? And there's other verses. I'm going to leave those to you to study at your own leisure. I said at the beginning, these prompt questions. These are some of the questions that come up and people ask frequently. And for some, they become stumbling blocks. For others, they become the energy that drives us day after day to understand better how God intervenes and acts in our life. When, and when Peter was uh, trying to divert God's attention from how God was going to deal with him to his, to his brother, uh, brother disciple over there, I think there's unleashed a tremendously important aspect to answering these questions. And that is that God answers them for you personally. And and as he guides you, as he brings you along in life, he shows himself to us and we learn more about him. And somehow these other questions, they're still there, but we continually learn about them as we seek to serve him in the middle of the, uh, the mess of humanity and the chaos that's there and the cultures in which we live. But as we serve God, do what we can before him uh, day by day, committing to follow him and obey him. He will, gladly, uh, he will t- show us how he is working in these individual life situations that are so far beyond our understanding. How does a good God allow such suffering? And all of those very difficult things. I have got an internal discipline that at the end of my road, when I'm trying to figure something out, what's going on here, I have to say, that's God's domain and he is God. What are the implications? The speaker's over time. I'm just going to just highlight these. This, it should produce humility in us before our Lord. As Doubting Thomas said, my Lord and my God. It prompts to us, in us, a deep respect and awe. Determines the condition of our relationship with God. As he said to Nicodemus, Jesus said, you must be born again if you want to enter his kingdom and know him in a personal relationship way. Strengthens our faith to Martha. Whoever believes in me will never die. It leads to contentment, my sheep. Listen to my voice, and it draws us to worship. When the blind man said, Who is he, sir? Or someone, he, someone asked him, Who is he, sir? Uh, tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And that's the way we should close. Is How long have we known him? Your name inserted. And how well do we follow him to learn more of him uh, each day? Let's close uh, our meeting in prayer, shall we? Dear God, our Father, we just thank you for the hope that we have of an eternal life with you. We thank you that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we thank you that you have called us to be able to say to you, My God, my God, you are mine. Thank you for the offer of eternal life through salvation, not through any works we can do, not through anything that we can offer, but you offered a life with you, a relationship with you, by simply believing in you 
and accepting Jesus as our personal Savior. And then we have the, once we enter your family, we know that we have this hope for all eternity that we will be with you for all time and for all eternity. So we just commit ourselves to you afresh, thanking you for your presence with us, thanking you for your word, your spirit who guides our minds and hearts, and for our brothers and sisters gathered together to learn more of you together. We pray that you would just help us in that regard. In Jesus' name, amen. And there is, uh, for those of you who smell all those wonderful scents coming from the other room, there is a fellowship lunch today for those who can stay.